Hey, Bob Cooney here. We're here for another episode of HTC Vibes, the practicality of virtual reality, where we dive into what's really happening in VR and who's using it and what are some of the challenges that we need to increase adoption. Today, we are going to be talking about healthcare and really therapy. We're going to be diving into how VR is helping patients and doctors and medical providers and psychologists make people healthier. And I've got an esteemed panel today. Let's just start. Susan Persky, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about who you are? I'm Susan Persky. I am from the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., more specifically the Genome Institute there, where I direct the Immersive Simulation Program. And I also have a substantive area of research, a lot of which uses VR as a research tool. Also very interested in the introduction of VR across you know, all areas of healthcare, you know, how to get us where we need to go and how to do the research to make sure that the tools that we're developing and using are working in the way that we intend. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, and we'll dive into the genome thing. I'm fascinated by that whole area. Denise, please uh, tell us who you are and a little bit about what you do. So uh, Denise Sil Silber, I'm here in my title as co-founder of vr for health which is uh, a company that is doing what we can to resolve the problem you raise of um, making VR wellness and therapeutic indications better known. I have a career of trying to get e-health, digital health, and now virtual reality launched and into the hands of patients and professionals. And I'll be happy to speak about that. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Denise. And Erin, um, give, uh, give us your quick quick and dirty bio. Just in a nutshell, I'm um, I, I'm a psychotherapist by training in health psychology, and I invented a patent pending technology called TheraVR, which is telehealth using virtual reality with customizable avatar technology and biometrics. So my field is providing direct psychotherapy through VR, which is provider patient engagement. And um, so we're early stage startup. And um, I, I launched uh, four years ago, and now we're actually going into our, our, our next major product launch this month. Yeah, cool. Congratulations. So, Susan, I want to I start with you because, you know, it, it sounds like you're using VR for there, there's the delivery side and then there's the research side. And mm -hmm. so let's start with the research side. What's happening, you know, at NIH and the genome program and how are you using VR to like, and what, and we'll talk about some of the challenges a little bit later. On the research side, the way we're using VR actually has not changed for about uh, the last 20 or so years uh, that I've been in this field. So really what we're doing there is creating research situations so that we can understand how doctors might handle know certain clinical situations so we can understand how patients might respond to different messages. So we'll do clinical simulations with virtual humans where we want to find out something. So in my case, often what we expect to see down the road in the future of genomics. So right now people are creating lots of technologies so that we can use genetics and genomics to understand, let's say your risk for heart disease later in life. It's a new tool. We don't know how healthcare providers are going to use it. So what we can do is we can create a, a VR environment with the virtual patient. We can give the kind of information we expect to see five, 10 years down the road in the, in the healthcare context and put real healthcare providers in there and see how they're going to use the information, um, how they might talk to the patient about it, you know, things like that. So that's one of the areas where, um, you know, VR has been really, really fruitful in our research. So when you say a virtual patient, is it a simulated 
patient that is used to train the doctor on delivery? Is that what you're talking about? It can be. I, I'm talking about a virtual human. Sometimes it can be for training. Oftentimes it is just, you know, sort of, it's a stimulus for a study. It's basically, you know, act like this is your patient and have a conversation with them in the context that we want to understand. So for, here's their uh, genetic information about their heart disease risk. Take this information and explain it to them. And that way we can understand, you know, what the physician is likely to do with that information, how they might naturally explain it so that we can go ahead and create recommendations and tools and say, okay, well, when this technology is actually available, we actually have this genetic information. Here are some of the problems that we've seen kind of arise. And here are some of the suggestions we have about how you should talk about it or how you know the reports should look so that the doctors can more easily use them and explain them to patients. You yeah. know, so it allows us to collect this sort of baseline data two, three, five years before um, these technologies actually enter you know, your usual doctor patient interaction. Yeah. So, and how do doctors react to this stuff? Like, like, you know, uh, and, uh, historically um, technology has been very slow to roll out in the medical industry because of all the regulation and approvals mm -hmm. and stuff that you have to go through when they see this, how do they react to it? And when they, and when they use it, how do they react to it? Um, you know, I've seen mostly just really positive reaction. It, it does sort of depend upon, um, you know, the capabilities and the characteristics of, of the virtual human patient. As I said, I've been doing this a really long time and it's getting better and better in terms of how, you know, much fidelity we can have in this interaction. But in general, I mean, I think the reaction is typically, you know, this is a would be a great tool for training, which obviously is now starting to happen. And it's been a really positive reaction overall, especially yeah. when they find out what we're doing with it, you know, and trying to help them do their jobs better down the road. Yeah, cool. Erin, you know, you, you'd mentioned avatars in your kind of lead in with Thera and, and talk a little bit about what you're doing there and how important you know, there's all this hype around, you know, avatars and, you know, we spend all our time talking about Mark Zuckerberg's lack of legs and in, in, in horizons. And I've done VR and I've been surprised at how much presence there is, even with bad avatars, like these weird cartoony avatars, even give you a sense of presence. What's happened? Like, how do you guys, when you're delivering, you know, therapeutic solutions, um, what are you doing in that space? And, and talk a little bit about where that's heading. My inspiration using the avatar technology comes from Skip Rizzo's PTSD treatment, which is called Brave Mind. And so my background working with veterans communities with PTSD, that's where it came from. Is like, how can I reach a population that's extremely adverse to showing up for treatment? And trust me, working with a vet that has severe PTSD, they don't show up for therapy. And you're lucky if they do, they avoid. So the concept is let's create a tool that increases retention. And what I mean by that, like my background is working with very, very severe mental illness with children. So extreme trauma, suicidal, cutting, and I'm... I created my technology inspired by my patients and I wanted to create a better tool where they're more comfortable seeing me. And so the avatar technology that I'm, um, I spearheaded in the beginning was a, just a directory of avatars that were human humanistic. And like what you were saying, Bob, they were, they weren't perfect, but now our new product is actually real, um, real similization of, um, of the likeness of a person. It's customizable. And so the, um, the patient 
it's mostly pediatrics. So like young people between the ages of nine to 21, 25. The, the concept is, well, hey, I, I'm really um, shy about seeing my therapist, especially if it's, a, if it's a woman. You know, I might have a patient that's really adverse to or feels scared about seeing a woman. Well, they can customize me to be a man. And even better than that, I can be customized into gender fluid. So the whole, the whole concept is allow the avatar to be a comfort zone for, mm. for psychotherapy because it's a little different than in medicine, right? In medicine, it's like, well, okay, I've got my provider. They're providing a procedure. In psychotherapy, we're providing a service. There's a difference. And it's very intense because it's about establishing a relationship, right? When you get therapy, it's not just one time. It's like every week. And so the concept is use the avatar technologies and evidence-based. So that's like, say, 12, 12 sessions for CBT or DBT. So that's, that's what we're using for the avatar concept. And like what Susan's saying, in, in phase three of our development, we're going to be moving towards that genome assessment. So like, for example, um, using an ACE study to qualify the patient if they're, this is for like older patients, that questionnaire really helps doctors in um, preventative care and also um, helping with um, reducing, you know, the number of uh, visits to um, the doctor because they already have like a baseline of understanding their previous history of trauma. Yeah. These, these, these mechanisms that we use for qualifying patients and then combining um, VR healthcare are really going to change and revolutionize the delivery of care. Yeah, fascinating. Denise, I want to, you know, you've, you've touched on your career, you've been doing a lot of things and, you know, anxiety, depression and rehab and PTSD and stuff. Where, and, 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 I, know, and I know that, you know, VR has been proven, there's been good research now that's shown that it works really well for PTSD and phobias. There's some you know, I've spoken to some people in research um, and clinical psychologists who question its use for anxiety and depression. Is there any research in what areas, where is this really working? Where is it being accepted as working? Where are we the closest to, you know, applying virtual reality as a therapeutic tool? And where are we, where do you believe we're going to get to, but there's a lot of work to go yet? I love your question. Just a bit of background how do we get clinicians to adopt a new something? When you think about it, we have a fantastic example of what has happened with medicines over the past few decades. There's really been a same model, which is that the pharmaceutical companies prepare the arrival with extensive events, publications, congresses, and then accompany the launch before with physical people, now more with digital marketing, but with considerable means and continue to publish and present it in conferences. In fact, the medical congresses, as they are structured today, reflect more or less what's going on with medicines, with pharmaceuticals. People go there to hear what's the latest treatment for cancer or for HIV or et cetera, et cetera. And we imagined that some sort of miracle was going to happen that you could come in. I mean, if you listen to people like, um, you know, Professor Spiegel at, at Cedars Sinai or Walter Greenleaf, you know, this is a radical new way of approaching the human body. It could 
really transform the way we consider medicine and understanding so much more that is going through the brain and that we could use it for almost everything. And I can tell you, because you were, that I've been looking at all the statistics on clinicaltrials.gov, the platform, international platform, there are over 800 scenarios or conditions for the 2000 studies that are currently ongoing in, in virtual reality. And it's totally different from anything that a clinician has ever done because it's about providing a headset that's equipped with a particular solution and then being concerned maybe about disinfection and uh, privacy of data. I mean, it's just totally different. And who is trying to communicate this? It's these fabulous companies like Aaron's Thera. It's all of the startups. And they don't have the means that those established pharmaceutical and biotech companies yeah. have. It's, you know, let's say 50, 100 startups that are bearing the full weight of trying to convince everyone. So to go back to your question, but I really feel well, that that- Before you do, I think it, I think it's a really, it's a really interesting and important point. And that happens in lots of verticals. It's happening in the military, you know, military contractors. It's a, you know, there's that whole industrial complex and there's all these startups that are pushing into it. And you know, and we did a we did one of the these series around military training and stuff like that. And it happens in I think it happens in every industry where the true disruption comes from from startups and the, the well-established endemic providers. And maybe eventually there's acquisition and funding and stuff that happens from that. But that's why I work with entrepreneurs. I love the innovation. It's, and, but and the difference is that whereas in the past 10 or so years since the patent cliff of the pharmaceutical companies, they it became routine for them to purchase compounds that had been developed by a much smaller company and then do all of what I was mentioning. Yeah. But there hasn't been an equivalent for the virtual reality yet. area yet. So that is what we are devoting ourselves to at VR for Health is trying to help those companies that are producing these fantastic things by supporting them with information and with information in particular about them. But to answer your question about which areas, one thing that seems to me to be very helpful in getting VR to progress is what's being done with painful medical procedures. It's very difficult to separate pain and anxiety. Pain leads to anxiety, anxiety leads to feeling more pain. So having all these medical procedures that might happen through your treatment for cancer or diagnostics, uh, you know, having to do these huge uh, needles and things that people don't like, more and more hospitals and, and medical centers are saying, gee, I could use that with very few headsets because we don't have 50 people undergoing the thing at once. You know, with a few headsets equipped with solutions and then the, the clean box type thing, we could serve all of our patients as long as we explain to the nurses and physicians how to use it. And this is getting very common in Europe and more and more common in the US. Like there's a huge expense in needle phobia because if a child comes in and then you have to call them back another time because they got so wrought up and they, they, they couldn't go through with whatever it is you were supposed to do, it's a real waste of time and money for everybody. And of course, disappointment for the parents, for the child. So there's there's a lot of benefit and a lot of things that could that could happen, but pain and anxiety are the ones that are out yeah. front. But rehabilitation, physical rehabilitation as well, whether it is from, let's say, a rheumatological orthopedic or 
stroke. And there are companies doing amazing things in that field as well. And then, then you've got a whole host of, of others, but those are the main ones. You know, you, you mentioned, and I, you know, I think Dr. Spiegel at, at Senior Sinai was, you know, was a big proponent of VR as a distractant, basically, to deal with pain. I want to dive into that a little bit, but I don't want to go down a rat hole. So pull me out if I get too deep. But like one of the concerns that I have about virtual reality is it's a distractant. And we are we are so distracted and we're, we there's so much now being written and talked about, which is good about social media and mobile technology and how it's created this, you know, this this pandemic of depression and anxiety, especially with the youth. And now we're seeing VR as a potential amplification of that but also potentially use you know, the paradox of we can use it as a distractant because it, it, it can distract us from pain. But part of our addiction to technology is being distracted from the psychological pain and trauma that we have that we don't want to deal with. And so as we move into virtual reality, as the way we consume media, which I think is going to happen over the next 10 years, how do you guys view that as a, and how do we manage that as a society? And I, I, anybody that wants to jump into that, I think it's one of the most important questions that I wrangled with on a day-to-day -day basis. This was the bone of contention that I struggled with when I invented my technology. I actually went, it's a cool story, I, I, I played hooky from work from the hospital, went down to LA, met Skip with my idea. And I struggled with it because I was like, okay, how can somebody like me, who comes from this clinical background, and also there's all these, you know, the laws and ethics and the protocols and everything. How can I get this to be in compliance, but at the same time not go through that, that path of, you know, the distraction or letting the machine take over the, the, pa the patient value care. And so that's what I created like for TheraVR to be very clinician driven. That way the, the VR is not taking away the entire um, clinical, um, I don't know if you want to say medicine, the procedure, or in, in psychotherapy, the service. If you have the right regulations and protocols in place with VR in healthcare, I think that you you have um, a better a better tool for delivering the care, because that's the back. You know, that's that was the big struggle with us as healthcare providers is, hey, VR was traditionally like a gaming, a gaming um, technology originally. And then once, you know, 20 years ago, when it was used in, you know, um, contained lab environments, very controlled. Now it's being, you know, it's mass usage, you know, or, you know, like take Oculus, for example, right? It's a home-based tool. But that's the issue is like how we have to have the protocols in place to allow this to be more uh, regulated. So we don't go through, you know, the, the bombardment of, you know, distraction, social media. Yeah. Su Susan, you're in the government. What's your view of the government's ability to get ahead of some of this stuff? And especially as AI comes in, and I don't want to make this about AI, but AI and VR are going you know, you're you're seeing AI driven tools for content creation, right? And so what's the mood in 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 DC that you can tell about and the ability to regulate and get ahead of this stuff? Yeah, I mean that's not as much the side of the government that I work on, but of course I do pay a lot of attention to it. You know, I think, at least in my world, you know, we do draw 
a relatively bright line between entertainment uh, uses and you know anything that's going to look like health, wellness, medicine. And you know a lot of us talk about using VR only when it does truly help and only when it is truly a value add. Distraction for distraction's sake is almost never a good thing unless we're talking about one of these procedures, right? And if it, if not VR, then probably something else, potentially you know pharmaceuticals or other you know other interventions. And so in a lot of cases, the the distraction element is sort of replacing something else, which, you know, may also not be particularly healthy or might be, you know, stressful, traumatic. You know, I think along with along with AI and all these other emerging uh, technologies, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're in the situation where legislation typically does not keep up, um, you know, and that's what it's looking like in, from my perspective, speaking, you know, for yeah. myself, certainly not for NIH, but, you know, I think, first, especially when it comes to things like data privacy, things like, I mean, we are, we are going to need um, a lot. We're going to need a lot of attention um, yeah. from a legislative perspective. But, you know, I don't, things change too rapidly for the, you know, our systems to keep up, which is partially why I think we need, you know, the other folks in the ecosystem, folks like Aaron who care about this, folks like Denise who care about this, to, you know, sort yeah. of be, be, helping us at least set some ground rules for ourselves, you know, kind of saying, you know, here's where, you know, here's where we want to, the kind of evidence we want to implement. Here's where, why we, where and why we want to use distraction. And here's what we think will be best, you know, for, for patients and for, for the medical enterprise. Denise, yeah, Denise yeah. I know you're, I know you're, you're chomping at the bit to get in. And, and one of the things I want you to touch on, you know, you're in, in, in France right now, I think Europe and the EU is taking a bit of a leadership position around, you know, creating some guardrails for this stuff. <clears throat> What's your view on this? And and specifically, see if you can touch on, you know, what we're seeing with AI is this this rush to commercialize it out of a panic around these large language models. And and so if if the FDA in America or the regulatory authorities are slow to approve this stuff, are we going to see, you know, companies find cracks to bring it to market to monetize it, or are we going to be able to? like roll this out in a controlled fashion to where it doesn't actually do harm? Two different things. If we're speaking about the practicality of VR for therapy or if we're speaking about AI, it's true that AI- Yeah, I guess has, I'm, I'm just using AI as an example of one that feels like it just got out of control all overnight. And yeah. and, and so I'm not talking about AI, I'm actually talking I about see. VR, no, using I, that as I, a metaphor. I would agree with you that AI suddenly overnight, even though I believe that there were a number of people who knew that this would happen, including people like Google probably decided not to go forward with it because they knew what would happen to their own model. Yeah, AI is, is a bit out of control. And you are right, Bob, that Europe has been building a framework of regulations to keep better check on uh, the use of data, the sharing of data, and there is work on artificial intelligence at the European level, for sure. They're much more advanced than you would think because there's not all that much communication. But to go back to, and so that could be a model of trying to go forward using, having more collaboration. There's also an organization called XRSI that you could invite to, who has a, a medicines part of it trying to work on it. And it is international, although based originally in the in the US. So they're working exactly on trying to protect us. But the good news and the bad news is that we don't have enough headsets being bought 
to really worry about this. The number I just looked up now, uh, the number of headsets predicted for 2024 is 13 million. Most recently, I believe it was around nine or 10 million sold in the year. And I believe to also to pull together VR and AI, that would explain why Meta suddenly relaunched its interest in AI, because that is much more common and present than the whole Meta metaverse use of headsets with, with VR. I wouldn't buy into that media narrative. I don't think there's any truth to that at all. Meta has been one of the leading investors in AI for 10 years. And, and, and I think that was just a, a that was just a media narrative to, to make sure. Possibly. That their stock Possibly. Price. But for, for our listeners interested in, in VR, there's so much work to be done for this to become something that every household would have. But I think that that's not my problem. My interest is in healthcare. And I do believe that for wellness, and uh, anxiety and pain and, and rehab, the healthcare could become the niche that pulls along a very safe use of virtual reality in conjunction with healthcare professionals. I guess my question, you know, to go back to you, Aaron, is, you know, you guys are making sure that there are humans, therapists behind each engagement, right, with a patient. But this morning there was a Bloomberg, Bloomberg story about you know, using AI chatbots to deliver therapy to patients. And so like, so, and if, you know, and, and I guess, so my tie into that and the government is what I see in the world and especially in the West is, you know, a rush to profits. And if the government is going to make it difficult for these solutions to get to market because of the way they should be done slow to market and proven and research-based and, and studied, you know, carefully before they're released, is there enough, you know, is, uh, is, you know, are we going to have chatbot therapists that are going to possibly erode the trust in this stuff before it actually gets out in a regulated way? You know, do, do, you, do you see where, yeah. I'm, where I'm going? Yeah. I actually just had this conversation with an engineer the other day. We, my concern with um, this explosion with chat GP, GPT is, yeah, this, there's this fear in the community. Well, in psychologists, it's like, oh, it's replacing us, right? And I can't express enough, and I'm speaking on behalf of my, my colleagues, like Dr. Jeffrey Gold, we always talk about this. The interpersonal relationship between the provider and the patient, it's not just about trust. You have to have a real, it's a real human experience. And if we, um, if we don't, address this at the ethical level. And this is, you know, Susan's work is so important. The, there has to be regulations. I created TheraVR as like, it's a telecommunications tool. It's like a new telephone. And it's to support whatever else is out there for, um, for telemedicine at home. It's an adjunct um, because we, we are going to see um, more headset um, use for, for healthcare, but for home-based use. And that, again, if it's done in a way where it's regulated, combining the AI, again, I my hope is that it's that long-term that it's regulated, right? That there's, it's not this like, okay, over-explosion and it's misregulated. Because I know myself, there's a lot of VR companies out there that don't have that background in clinical. They don't lo know the laws and ethics they don't understand those rules, especially on the regulatory side, but also on the IT. 
right? Yeah. Like going back to what Susan was saying, you have to somehow combine that cybersecurity, IT analysis, all of that, that co-aligns with the, the, the rules for HIPAA, right? Yeah. So, there's so many things. There's three vectors that I want to take on. I'm going to start with the last one and see if I can remember to work backwards. Let's talk about privacy and security. You know, it's something that H, not to make this an HTC commercial, but it's something that HTC has kind of planted a flag around. They're not a media company, right? And and the other companies that are in and around VR, you know, Google historically, Meta, those are media platforms and media makes their money based on selling ads and selling data in return for like it's data versus for attention, right? That's their, that's their value model. How do you guys view privacy and where does the, where's the, and I guess, so the tools are there to measure like HP had a headset that gave you all these analytics around, around cognitive state and stuff like, you know, heart rate and things like that. And eye tracking now is happening and facial tracking. And we can, we can, we can determine so much by measuring that stuff. Who's responsible? Who should be responsible in the ecosystem for this protection of that data? Because it's not going to be the hardware companies. They're going to serve it up, right? They're like, we're, it's not our responsibility. I've talked to all of them. Not our responsibility. We're abstracting the data, but it's there for people to use. Who's responsible for that privacy in this space? I mean, I think ultimately, I would say we all are, but certainly I think you know, I've been I've been thinking and talking about this for for quite a long time, and and I do think you know ultimately legislation. Europe is obviously you know way further along than the U.S. in that regard, and I think you know even a lot of the laws that are already existing would would address some of the problems that we see um, coming down the pike there. But you know, I think also the software and um, application companies, you know, and it's not, either has to be carrots, you know, that you know, a lot of them won't do it willingly, but, you know, especially as uh, some of these applications are moving towards true healthcare medical applications, you know, I think those things will have to be built in and not everything will operate under HIPAA. A lot of things won't operate under HIPAA. HIPAA is really narrow. Um, so I don't think we can rely on, you know, sort of the fact that things will be operating in a, a larger healthcare ecosystem to take care of any of that. Yeah, one of the things when I hear we all are responsible, what that means is nobody takes responsibility because they all assume somebody else is going to be responsible, and then mm -hmm. it turns into a bit of the wild west. And and I think that's um, I think I think that's a concern. Yeah. Can I mention something, Bob? Yeah, it's it's it was like the it's like when the concept of telemedicine came out. You know, it was again that was like, oh god, who's being responsible here? You know, and like again, it was this, it was a it was a slow process, but the more um government regulatory standards like our technology it's encrypted right i designed it so that no you cannot use it on a public wi-fi you and it's it's completely the, the, the back-end servers right you're talking about it security compliance there are certain companies that do thrive in this like aws um on the vr side there's there's different companies that do um focus on protecting the privacy. So there's not a data breach. Um, so as long as it there, those standards are in place yeah. for all these VR companies that are like going into health, health, healthcare, you know, especially startups that, you know, they're building their product too fast, you know, that that's, that's scary. And, and some it, of that comes, you know, Denise, you, you know, part of, part of the reason entrepreneurs bring their products to market too fast is they don't have the financial runway to wait and take the steps. And, 
you know, and, and so, you know, one of the things I wanted, you brought it up again, Aaron, thanks for the reminder is telemedicine, like, you know, years that telemedicine languished, and then we had a pandemic, and all of a sudden, it just, you know, mother is the necessary, something about mother and invention and necessities, I always screw up those sayings. How has the telemedicine, I don't know if I want to label it an explosion, but it kind of felt like that for a while. How do you see that's going to help the growth of virtual reality therapy and treatments and being accepted now into the marketplace and and what's available for these companies to to get funding to do it right i mean there's really two questions there definitely the pandemic created a before and after and it's just easier for every single digital innovation in the categories that already exist including vr get a friendly ear from whomever you're presenting them to it's no longer something to to push away as to the funding that these companies get and their ability to satisfy their requirements, that goes up and down. Um, we saw that 22 was 2022 was a record year, and now it's become harder, and there are a lot, lot more layoffs in in technology. I guess though that those companies will learn the hard way if they don't do things like what Erin was mentioning that she is doing to protect the patient, user, and physician is that their products won't be accepted by the regulatory authorities in Europe or the US. And they are ramping up more and more in their ability to do that. I would say that if we're worried about privacy, that's already an issue with everything that exists because you can re-identify, de-identify data. The way you hold your phone can enable us to know that it was you. Your phone is listening to you. Then there are the the assistance, the the Alexas and such, is is privacy even alive? Yeah, and people care. Like, there's research that shows that millennials, Gen Z, and you know, they they're willing they're willingly trading privacy for convenience, and and so you know, I, I, and I think that that's a you know, it's a it's an interesting trend. Whether it proves to be dangerous or not, we'll have to see. But certainly, the the statistics around anxiety and depression are. are you don't know if there's causality there or not. Yeah, Aaron, go. Yeah, and this this goes back to psychotherapy, which you know, you know, the golden rule is confidentiality, right? I mean that, and this this is really hard, right, for us um, innovators and also us providers, is protecting that confidentiality. Yeah. Right. Um. Because behavioral health is so much different than medicine. People, people can go and like say, "Oh my God, I just had this great procedure done at Kaiser or whatever." I love my doctor. You can't do that in behavioral health. You can't. You can't disclose that information globally. Remember, um, Denise posted that this amazing news about you know that this breach of privacy through an online counseling company. You you just can't do that, right? And just going back to like gaining that trust of the adoption so that we don't fall into this trap of losing confidentiality, especially with psychiatric emergencies. Yeah. It's going to be more trustworthy for the, the doctors and the hospital systems to know that there's, there's better mechanisms for protocols. Yeah. And so like, so one, one of the things that's really important to me is about patient safety, not just their, not that just their privacy, but also their safety. So especially with psychiatry and psychology emergencies, we have to have better tools in combination with VR, like emergency protocols. So especially, I don't think any VR company except ours is actually endorsing better mandated reporting 
and protocols where the the, the provider does not loo- lose the patient. So we endorse telemedicine 911, which is a very, it's just a, a revolutionary idea to improve mandated reporting for us um, psychiatrists and psychologists, where we don't abandon the patient if they're going into a psych emergency. Let's 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 touch on on that because you reminded the the other thing the vector I wanted to hit on, and then I want to really talk about the future and the positive stuff. Like we've been talking a lot about the challenges, which is you know part of the series is what do we have to solve for this stuff to scale? There's so many so much powerful stuff here, and and you talked about you know that 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 that, that client patient connection and the co creation of a relationship between. Uh, a mental health care provider and the patient. And and Chris Milk famously, you know, called, you know, he labeled VR and, you know, the empathy machine. And empathy is such a powerful thing. And and how do you, we'll use this as a transition to the more powerful side. What are some of the, you know, the, the benefits, the breakthrough benefits that you guys are seeing or reading about um, around the power of virtual reality to deliver these solutions in meaningful ways to patients? Well, it so happens that it's just today that we put out the information about this amazing pilot that is really changing lives for children and their families. Um, We've brought together through VR for Health headsets and solutions and expertise such that a wellness center for children with cancer is for the first time starting to propose and evaluate with the help of the children themselves, the use of VR to be able to better tolerate the moments when they have to go to the hospital for different procedures or when they're particularly in pain or anxiety at home. And the children say it all. They're just lovely and amazed at how they can step into this and not feel the challenges of their daily life. Yeah, cool. Aaron, what what are you guys seeing in that connection? The the in the empathy part is it, and what are some of the challenges still there to be able to to really create that? I have a union therapist that I meet with every week on Zoom, and and you know we have that face to face connection and the co created relationship, and and so I'm curious about you know how that will play in VR. Will it work with avatars? Do we need photorealistic avatars first? Like. What has to happen to be able to create that connection where people really get the full benefit that they that they might that they would only get maybe in a face to face meeting? That is a really good question, and it's um, again it goes to the the age group. I I believe as a clinician, mm-hmm. like pediatrics responds so well to using the avatar technology. Um, my case study was um, with a, a little girl, and she had severe PTSD and um, comorbid issues. And using, using, seeing me as an avatar and allowing her to, to change me, not just increase the therapeutic alliance, but it was just amazing for me. I, 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 I get really emotional when I talk about it. It was like she, be, she became more um, trusting of me, but also something about the experience for her allowed her to open up more than just doing regular telepsych. And that was the true connection between two human beings. It's not just the VR. It's actually, yeah, yeah, it's it's like I I can still connect on a humanistic level using this tool, but it's still like the immersive environment. And that, that was the connection. And the fact that you said it's generational makes so much sense because there's, you know, so much evidence now where kids are just, 
you know, they're represented as avatars in third places like Fortnite and Roblox and stuff all the time and their friends are. And so, so to them, the, the, you know, what is reality, you know, is being blurred as we go younger in the generations. And, you know, you ask somebody who's 60, what's real versus somebody who's 15, what's real. And you're going to get different answers now. And so yeah. it makes sense that that's generational. But there, and this, we didn't grow up with that. Right. But the, this is a generation that did grow up with yeah. it. Exactly. multi-gaming and stuff but it the concept is like it's reducing loneliness yeah you have you have this you have this as a tool right the avatar customization but you you are not reducing the loneliness because in psychotherapy that's true psychotherapy is not is, is spending that time with your patient but that that's that's the whole concept and like what denise was saying about um pediatric cancer patients there's the health psychology on top of that, right? The pain and the procedures that they're going through is very scary. If you can have this as a combination of the provider engagement with, with the patient using VR, it's, 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 a, better, it's, a, um, it's a better solution. And then, and, you know, on top of that, you know, all of the, in combining this with every, all aspects of medicine, right? Yeah. That was my experience, like using my technology with this one, this one um, um, case study, and I just just published it to JMIR. It was profound, the change, and it was a lot. It was six months of using this, and it was just profound. And her parents go back to me and go, "Okay, what did you do to my daughter? Okay, she stopped, she stopped doing this, stopped having the night tremors." I was like, "I was just providing psychotherapy, but in a better way." Yeah, better That's way. Yeah, it's amazing. What's up? Let's let's go ahead. Give me a prediction, Susan. I'm going to start with you. Five years from now, where do you see? What role do you see virtual reality playing? In I can tell you what I hope, <laughs> which is I I hope that we have identified you know some segment or subset of applications and approaches that you know typically work for many people. You know, we can provide them. You know, not all not necessarily on a prescription basis, but you know, they can all maybe be used in a single headset that we can provide to people and say, well, you might benefit more from X, Y, and Z. You know, they typically work, but everyone's different. Uh, and being able to personalize a little bit, kind of pointing to what Aaron said, you know, the adaptability is really paramount because, you know, it, generational is, is one aspect of it, but really we all need something a little bit different. So being able to sort of personalize, but have it be sort of a you know, a formulary or a one-stop shop where we kind of know a subset of things that that do tend to work for people. Denise, you want to give us a, a prediction for five years from now? What are we going to be seeing here? I would hope that it, it's going to become common for women who are going into childbirth mm -hmm. to be able to benefit from this if they if they so wish, because that's a nice momentary use. You don't have to worry about addiction to that. I would also hope that there might be, I was thinking of this distribution through pharmacies of headsets that could be returned for different moments uh, in your life. And I, I thirdly would think the, the medical procedures that I was mentioning, the diagnostic procedures and other painful things, needles and whatever that go on in hospitals and clinics, that it could become more commonplace. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. What about you, Erin? I foresee more home hospitalization using VR. And this is my vision is if you think of the, my headset's like a medical bracelet and they're utilized and it's, it's, it's given back. I call it like the sustainable yield of, of VR telehealth. It's like the, the headsets are given back to the, the hospitals or whatever 
is to reduce reduce waste and costs, but combining all of the different tools that we have in digital medicine with BR for home-based use. And that, that includes, you know, the safety mechanisms like telemedicine 911, Dr. Chu's innovation, getting the procedural pharmaceutical medicine, all the instruments that are needed for, for home-based use. But VR is going to be a conduit, an adjunct to um, combining all of these medical necessities in the home. That's what I foresee for five years it's so exciting and it's so good to see so many of you and and, and the, your whole communities like really working to to you know to be in the light side of vr and making sure that this stuff is applied for the benefit of humanity i think there's you know there's there's a lot of everything's a paradox and everything has a shadow and it's really good to shine the light on the on the wonderful work that you guys are doing and and your businesses and your communities and your organizations and so yeah thank you so much and and keep up the amazing work Thank you for bringing us together and Erin, uh, who, who had contacted me and three power women in VR. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, that's going to be a wrap for this version of the practicality of virtual reality, talking about healthcare and therapy and some of the challenges and amazing benefits that we can expect to see in, in the future. So stay tuned for another version of this series brought to you by HCC Vive. I'm Bob Cooney, your host, and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.